This morning, the scripture passage is from Mark chapter 14, and it is a, a bit of a longer passage this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to read it ahead of time, and then Ed will come forward. I'll offer a brief prayer for him, and then he will help us to understand this passage a little bit better. So if you have your Bibles with you, and we really do want to encourage you, as always, to, although the words are on the screen, it's really helpful to have an actual Bible in front of you so that you can follow along, and you can see this passage in its context. It's part of, of course, a greater narrative, which is much bigger than what we often see on a screen. So we really encourage you uh, to have a Bible with you and to turn to Mark chapter 14. We also hope that, that this reading schedule has been helpful for you. At this point, if you're following along, you'd be in about the chapter 8, chapter 9 section. So this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but it's giving you a little bit of a preview for, for what you'll, of course, read a little bit later on. So we hope that that's been helpful for you. The verses we are looking at this morning are chapter, or chapter 14, verses 12 through 52. So we'll start at chapter 12. The, the subtitle there is The Last Supper. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered him, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows three, twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. 
Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Living God, we pray now that you would pour out your spirit of wisdom and understanding on Ed as he speaks your words to us this morning. Fill him with your spirit. May he sense you near to him. And may our hearts and our minds be open to receive with joy whatever you have to say to us this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to preach a sermon this morning entitled The Great Failure, The Politics of Treachery. And I begin with three vignettes, three true stories to set the stage. One, in 2001, Scott Kim, only 17 years old at the time, managed to smuggle himself and his mother out from the brutal conditions of life in North Korea, escaping to mainland China. In a country suffering from a self-inflicted famine, their stated rationale for wanting to defect was so that they could, quote, eat hot meals. Unable to get out of China, however, Scott and his mother worked for six years as undocumented farm laborers. But when one of their neighbors found out who they were, they reported them, and Scott and his mother got sent back to North Korea. Scott says, quote, when we reached the detention center in North Korea, we lost all our rights as human beings. We were treated like animals, literally. We had to crawl on the floor to move from place to place. Business Insider, the magazine in which Scott's story is told, continues by saying this. Kim was put in a cell with 20 other defectors. There was one toilet in the corner and no space to lie down. Day and night, the defectors sat on the ground. It was our punishment because we were sinners. 
When he or other defectors were told to go down the corridor to the warden's office, they were made to crawl on their hands and feet. Officers beat them with gloves and sticks as they went. Two, some years ago at the reception of a wedding where some 300 people were present, the groom got up after all the festivities at the microphone to thank all of the many guests for coming, for their gifts, for their presence, and he said in response um, to their outpouring of love and generosity, he also wanted to give them a gift. And he said, if you reach underneath your chairs, you will each find an envelope a manila envelope, and indeed, as they reached under the chair, they found a very large manila envelope. And he said, please, go ahead and open it. It's my gift to you. And as people opened the manila envelope and pulled out a 8 by 10 picture, the look of horror began filling their faces, and gasps were heard all around the auditorium because this picture incriminated the best man, as well as the groom's new wife, of an adulterous affair in the most graphic, obscene way possible, exposing them before the whole crowd, shaming them in front of everyone. Apparently, the groom had gotten suspicious some weeks before the wedding and hired a private detective who took the picture of them together at a hotel room. The groom said to everyone after waiting a few minutes for them to see the picture sufficiently, he turned to the bride and said some words I can't repeat from this pulpit, and then he turned to the groom and did likewise, and then he said, I'm out of here, and he left. The marriage was annulled the next day. Three, about four years before Jesus was born at a Passover festival in Jerusalem, Archelaus, the son of King Herod, puppet king of Rome, tried to silence Jewish leaders who were leading people at that Passover festival. In response, a small mob formed and started throwing stones at Archelaus' military cohort. Archelaus responded to this uprising viciously, as the first century historian Josephus describes it this, this way. Archelaus unleashed his entire army on them, the infantry in a column through the city and the cavalry in the fields. While everyone was busy sacrificing, the soldiers suddenly swooped down on them, killing about 3,000 and scattering the rest into the nearby hills. Although here just soared so often, crucifixion was the Romans' preferred way of dealing with unruly, treacherous subjects, not to mention just runaway slaves. As Tom Holland summarizes it in his magisterial work, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Exposed to public view like slabs of meat hung from a market stall, troublesome slaves were customarily nailed to crosses. No death was more excruciating, no more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. In the great war of AD 70, when the Roman legions led by Titus, I talked about this two weeks ago, took back the temple complex from the Jewish revolutionaries, traitors against Rome, Joseph, Josephus tells us this, the soldiers, out of the wrath and hatred they bore for the Jews, nailed those they caught one after another and another after another to the crosses by way of jest 
when their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. At one point, Josephus records the number of those being crucified reached 500 people per day until there was no more wood left in the area for the purpose. 500 people a day. Imagine, you only are walking on foot. The sight that you would behold. Three true stories from three different places, three different circumstances in life, but the same underlying theme. Treachery, betrayal, defection, perceived failure to do what is required is met by those in control with a response that is specifically designed to publicly humiliate, to publicly shame, and ultimately to annihilate the other in some way or another, either emotionally or truly physically. Scott Kim is made to crawl on his hands and feet like an animal in front of the guards and other prisoners while being whipped and taunted like a circus animal. Instead of simply calling off the wedding and walking away quietly, the bride and best man are subjected by the groom to maximal existential, existential and emotional torture, having their shame exposed for all to see in the most embarrassing way imaginable. And in Roman rule, the whole point of crucifixion was to humiliate, to ter- torture, to terrify, to shame, as Tom Holland expresses it. Nothing spoke more eloquently of a failed revolt than the sight of hundreds of hundreds of corpse-hung crosses, whether lining the highway or else massed before a rebellious city, the hills all around stripped bare of their trees. Even in peacetime, executioners would make a spectacle of their victims by suspending them in a variety of ways. One perhaps upside down with his head towards the ground. Another with a stake driven through sensitive places. Another attached by his arms to a yoke. Everything about the practice of nailing a man to a cross, a crux, was repellent. And this was the very point, beloved of God. Crucifixion was the ultimate way of shaming the guilty, the rebel, the brigand, showing their powerlessness and warning others, if you dare cross Rome, Rome will cross you. So think twice before acting treacherously. If you do it, you will end up an insect pinned to a piece of cork left for the birds to pick you clean and for all the living to witness it. For days and days on end is your corpse rotted there and the birds had a feast. You will be left in a state of abject humiliation and shame. Treachery, beloved, in whatever form, betrayal, defection, mutiny, treason, no crimes, political or interpersonal, are taken and felt to be more serious and responded to more viciously. And Jesus, King Jesus, let us remember, as we see in our text, was no stranger to treachery against him on all levels both political and interpersonal. In fact, every single scene in the text that Jenna read for us this morning is saturated in the atmosphere of various forms of treachery. As we see, 
Judas, who Mark repeatedly reminds us in his gospel, was one of the twelve, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle of Jesus, closest to him. Judas eats supper with Jesus and pretends to be his friend, even while, all the while, politically plotting his takeover by the authorities. And then knowing that Jesus will be on the Mount of Olives at a certain time, privileged to this private information, Judas leads a squadron of soldiers up there to arrest Jesus. And appallingly, the secret signal Judas uses to identify Jesus and to betray him into their hands is a kiss. A kiss. Never in the history of humankind has there been a more powerful symbol of treachery and of the moral disgust it should awaken in us because so wide is the gap between Judas' motives and Judas's action. For here Judas mingles his treacherous intent with the tenderest gesture of love, a kiss. It is appalling. And then Peter. Peter, whose motives may be more pure and whose intentions may be very heroic, will nonetheless defect from his Lord at his Lord's greatest hour of need, denying his existence, leaving him to suffer alone. And not only Peter, the text assures us, but all of Jesus' disciples, they all run away. They all defect. Every single one of them, they abandon their leader when he most needs them. King Jesus, their Messiah. But not only Jesus' inner circle interpersonally, but Jesus' own people, the Jews, politically. Those from whom he has been born and to whom he has come in order to help them. They also turn against their king. It is treachery. In the various forms of betrayal, defection, denial, mutiny, Jesus faces it all. The true king is abandoned, left for dead. And Mark draws it out for us, slowly, patiently, as Jenna read in the text. He wants us to see it. He wants us maybe to feel it. But before we look at how Jesus responds to it, friends, and himself engages or reacts to what I'm calling here the politics of treachery, we do well, I think, to look at how it impacts him. Because Mark wants us to know and thus stresses it strenuously at the center of our text. And it's something. It really is something. In Mark 14, just after Jesus leaves from serving the Lord's Supper and heads up to the Mount of Olives to pray, knowing what's coming at him, we are told that he is, quote, deeply distressed and troubled, that he is brought to the brink of death. The Greek, I must tell you, is thick and cloying here with emotion. Commentators have struggled to bring out the force and weight of the Greek in English here. Here are some suggestions from different commentators. Myers says that the Greek portrays Jesus as shuddering in distress, in anguish. Loyamer says the Greek words here depict the utmost degree of unbounded horror and suffering. Rawlison says that the Greek is suggestive of shuddering awe. Mofat interprets Jesus to be appalled agitated. Lightfoot says the Greek here, quote, describes the confused, 
restless, half-distracted state which is produced by physical derangement or by mental distress as grief, shame, disappointment. The point is, the various layers of treachery Jesus is about to face as God's appointed king, as God come back to liberate his people, tears him up inside, torments him with an emotional tsunami made up of a swirl of horror, anger, and all-around anguish of soul. It's indescribable. And yet, even though Jesus is feeling all of this, look at how he responds. Amazingly, mouth-droppingly, Jesus does not respond by using his unparalleled power to make them crawl immediately on their hands and feet, treating them like animals. Jesus does not respond by using his unmatched strength to expose them publicly, to draw them out with an 8 by 10 picture in all of their shameful nakedness of character and reveal them to the whole world for the frauds and failures they are, those who've committed adultery against him. Jesus doesn't even respond to his political enemies who've always been against him, who've been thorns in his side the whole time by vaporizing them on the spot or by more fittingly spearing them on the spot with trees that suddenly pop up out of the ground and crucify them and letting them hang there for the birds to pick at for a while. No, our Lord, friends, does not respond to his friends and even his foes' treachery in this way. But instead, what Jesus does, in total and utter contrast to the way of most humans, and in particular, in complete juxtaposition, to the crushing ways of Rome. Jesus responds to those who have been treacherous toward him by using his strength to restore. Or at least by using his strength to pave the pathway toward their restoration. Just look at the mercy of our Lord. Consider his pathway that leads to or at least towards, that seeks our restoration. Knowing that Judas is going to betray him as they share the Passover feast together, Jesus does not, as maybe a government who has just received a tip would do. He does not take away Judas's freedom in order to prevent him from completing his dastardly deed. But instead, Jesus warns him. He puts pressure on his will. The one who dips bread into the bowl with him will betray him. And woe to you, Judas, if you do it. You will end up feeling better if you'd never been born. He pushes on his will. And likewise, knowing that Peter is going to defect him and deny him along with all the others, Jesus does not, as one may be informed by a private detective might do, try to steal their freedom in order to stop them from failing against him in this way. But instead, again, Jesus warns them, verse 27, you will all fall away. He puts pressure on their will to do what is right. He allows them their freedom. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why is our Lord so committed to our freedom to the point that he will allow us to use our freedom to betray him and deny him and desert him? In short, to be treacherous against him. It's because, beloved, as our text displays, 
by allowing us to act in our freedom as human beings and allow us to do it when our virtue is not going to be virtue signaling, but it's going to be costly virtue, Jesus sets the stage for us to experience what I might call here a double apocalypse or a double revelation or a double sudden realization. On the one side, look where Jesus' commitment to his disciples' freedom leads them one and all. It leads to great failure, to treachery of different levels. And for Peter and Judas, who are standing representatives of us all, their movements in freedom each then lead to the sudden realization of their own frailty and weakness and the varying depths of their own sin. They realize, both of them, to put a point on it, just what terrible lovers they are. How deep the rabbit hole of their sin and depravity and weakness really goes. Jesus has been nothing but goodness and love and charity and life to them. And they turn on him or from him. They turn on love itself, life himself, innocence itself. To be sure, this realization is made explicit in the Gospels for both Peter and Judas. After the rooster crows a second time, Mark tells us Peter breaks down and weeps. He sees where his own freedom has led him. It's led him to be a terrible disappointment to his Lord and to himself. Peter realizes he's a pathetic failure. The spirit may be willing, indeed, but the fallen sinful flesh is weak. And although Mark is silent about it, Matthew is not. Matthew tells us that Judas too has this terrible realization of his own filth before the Lord, of just where his own freedom has led him. And this realization makes Judas despair of his very existence to the point of tragically committing suicide. Jesus, by allowing their freedom to have free reign, brings them to this profound recognition of the depth of their sin. Or maybe I can put it this way. Jesus allowing human freedom in Peter and Judas and the others to have its own sway leads them to a point of being stripped of their illusions. There is a wonderful scene in a movie called Instinct, just instinct, a single word, where Anthony Hopkins and Cuba Gooding Jr. star It's a very powerful scene. They're both of them scientists and there's some kind of outbreak or something going on like that. And Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character is very self-confident and very self-righteous. And he thinks that he's in control. And the two men are in one room at one point and um, they're having an argument about what the next step is. And all of a sudden, Anthony Hopkins' character leaps up and goes for Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character and he grabs him and he puts him in a headlock and he's more powerful and he's stronger than Cuba Gooding's character and, and Cuba Gooding's character is struggling and trying to get out and he can't and, and Hopkins just flexes and tightens up every time he does so. And so he starts to calm down and then Hopkins brings his ear right next to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s ear and he says, what have I taken from you? And Cuba Gooding Jr. says, my job. And he says, wrong, try again, what have I taken from you? And he says, my control. And Hopkins says, no, you never had it in the first place. And more time passes and the tension rises. And Hopkins says, what have I taken from you? And finally, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character says, my illusions. 
And then he releases him and he says, yes, that's right. I've stripped you of your illusions. And beloved, what Jesus is doing by allowing Peter and Judas's freedom to go to its end point is stripping them of their illusions, of self-sufficiency, of self-righteousness, of the idea that they are at last going to bring something to the agenda of Jesus, that they are going to be able to overcome on their own. He's stripping them of their illusions of goodness. And he's showing them the depths of their sin. And we might say, well, why is this revelation necessary? And it's necessary so that they can experience the second apocalypse. Is that despite the fact that they are weak, despite the fact that they are failures, despite the fact that they are not sufficient on their own, and have indeed acted treacherously against the Lord, the Lord does not look at them with malice or hate, but instead he continues to look at them in love. He does not treat them or us as our sins deserve, but he acts to restore. This is the whole point, friends, being underscored throughout our text. The whole thing, all the way through, each scene that we see first in the Lord's Supper as Judas plots to hand him over, then in Jesus' words about the sheep and shepherds as he predicts Peter and the others' desertion, then again in his agonized prayer in the garden as the disciples fall asleep on him, and then again in his response to the soldiers and Judas as Judas disgustingly kisses him. In each instance, Jesus is breathing and community communicating not revenge for treachery, but transforming love and the invitation to enter it. As the disciples later realize, even while he is being betrayed, Jesus offers his own body and his own blood as a new atoning Passover lamb so that all of us Judases might be saved, our sins atoned for. And the passage that Jesus quotes about the sheep and shepherds comes from Zechariah 13, which is finally about the redemption of the Lord of his people in the midst of their treachery. And the cop Jesus is referring to in the garden and looking to the Father to give him strength to endure, to drink down to the dregs, is precisely the cup of drinking down the wrath of God for our sins, to take them away, to pay for them. And finally, that kiss. The kiss Jesus receives from Judas is but a reverse image of the kiss Jesus is offering to Judas. Really and truly the kiss of love in the midst of wickedness. The kiss that breaks the sinner's heart in two so that it can be made one in love again. Jesus responds to treachery by reaching out to restore us instead of destroy us. To take away our shame instead of increase it. I proclaim the gospel to you this morning, friends. I proclaim to you the truth about how Jesus, in his sovereignty, transforms the politics of treachery into a politics of transformation through forgiveness. And how he invites us to embrace this kind of politics too. To live out this kind of politics of treachery, which is a politics of transformation in our own lives, not only for ourselves through Christ, but in the power of Christ for others. So as I began, I conclude with a story, just one story this time instead of three. 
An article appeared in the New York Times on October 6, 1996 about a man called Chris Carrier. A man who had gone to visit an older man who was ailing and living out his last days at a nursing home in North Miami Beach, Florida. Chris drove a distance to go and see him and brought him what he had heard was this old man's favorite fish treat, smoked amberjack. While he was there, he made sure the man was warm and comfortable and put blankets on him. The old man's name was David McAllister. David had become blind in his old age and he was lonely and he was very, very frail. The truth is that he was very near to death when Chris visited him. David had no one to look after him. No family to speak of, no wife, no children, nobody, except Chris. After his death, in fact, Chris was the one to make the funeral arrangements, and he was the only one to then attend that funeral and pay his final respects. Perhaps part of the reason for this is because, well, David hadn't exactly lived an inspiring or inviting life. In fact, it was the opposite. David was a convicted felon, and among other things, very recently, David had confessed to abducting, stabbing, and shooting a young man who was only 10 years old, point blank in the head, and leaving him for dead in the Everglades. And this was only after already taking his cigarette butts and burning the child's skin with cigarette butts repeatedly. That had occurred 22 years before, in December of 1974, when David was in his mid-50s. It was a gruesome crime, totally unprovoked, brutal, sadistic, malicious, unimaginable, unforgivable. Miraculously, despite a bullet in the head, the 10-year-old boy survived. Lying unconscious in the Everglades for six days, a farmer found him still alive. And in terms of injuries, the boy had been blinded in the left eye, but beyond that, he simply had some scars here and there on his body. It was a miracle. An even greater miracle, that 10-year-old boy was Chris Carrier. <laughs> Chris Carrier, the same boy, now a man, visiting his victimizer and attending his funeral to pay his final respects. And it wasn't the first time Chris had visited him. He started visiting him the moment he had learned that it was David who'd done all this to him. At the first meeting, David wept when he saw Chris and heard that this was the same young boy he had abducted and shot and burned with cigarette butts and left for dead. Quote, he said he was sorry, Chris reported at that first meeting. And I told him, I forgive him, and that from now on, there would be nothing like anger or revenge between us. Nothing except a new friendship. Chris said that in subsequent visits before David's death, the two often prayed together and read, quote, I'm glad he was able to put the past behind him, Mr. Carrier said. I tried to let him know he had a friend. Beloved friends, Jesus the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the cosmic Christ has tried to let us know that we have a friend, a friend in Jesus. 
Chris had been touched by the upside-down politics of treachery employed by Jesus, a politics of transformation that moves through forgiveness and ends in love. And because of this, he could engage in the same astounding program. And may we, as Christ's church, do it too, to the glory of the triune God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.